Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Okay, well, we have made it through yet another week of our ever-increasingly insane news cycle. <laughs> and before we get into the news of this past week, which was a just a doozy, this is... Things are going to get really insane and ugly between now and the election. But before I get into that, um, a little bit of programming notes, a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of letting you guys know kind of how things are going to be going going forward. Um, I've announced this on Twitter. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, obviously, I'm doing this here for you now. Um, what I am going to be doing is because my schedule has gotten a lot busier as of late, I am going to be going down to doing one recorded podcast episode a week. I'll keep this episode, the weekly roundup episode. Uh, my second episode that I normally record each week, I'm going to be transitioning that over to a Substack newsletter. So I will put the link to that down in the show notes. Doing this is going to help me free up my schedule a little bit more and still be able to give you guys as much content as I possibly can, especially with writing. I can do that a lot more kind of on the fly. I don't need to be in front of the mic. And obviously when I need to record, we have scheduling here in my house. This is a two podcast household. So scheduling is always at a premium. So in order to try to kind of keep up with the amount of content that I've been giving you guys while also kind of diversifying how I give you guys content, because that's something that I've been thinking about doing for a while too. And I couldn't quite figure out how to do it while maintaining my existing schedule. But now that my schedule has gotten busier, that kind of made the decision for me to go down to doing a once a week recording and then giving you more written content. So just in case you were wondering how things have been and kind of where the second episode has been lately, it will be now in written format. And so, of course, you can always subscribe to the Substack newsletter. Um, for right now, it is going to be free. I will transition to it being a paid newsletter. I will let you guys know when that is going to happen. I will give you guys advance notice and I will figure out between now and then how I want to handle whether I will do just exclusively paid content or paid plus free content. It's really going to depend on my schedule and how I can kind of finesse this and work this out to try to give you guys as much content as possible, but still also at some point making some kind of money off of this. So just as a heads up, just want to let you guys know what's going on. Again, link will be down in the show notes if you want to subscribe to the newsletter. If not, that is fine too. I totally understand. But moving on to where I start these now for what seems like forever, although it's actually been about six months now, and that is with the unemployment numbers. For the week ending on the 19th, we did have a slight uptick in new jobless claims. Um, the week prior, we were at 860,000. This past week, we were at 870,000 new initial unemployment claims. I mean, I guess we're kind of leveling out in this area, which again is still under a million, which is a lot better than it was previously, but this is still ridiculously high and I'm a little nervous about it ticking up at this point in the year when I was thinking that perhaps it would start trending further downward because of seasonal unemployment or seasonal employment excuse me the fact that it ticked up 10,000 is making me a little nervous and just some things that I've seen kind of here and there um 
Kind of on the good news side, hopefully, maybe, fingers crossed, uh, Florida has announced that they are planning on completely reopening, like, full steam, 100% capacity, indoor everything, all of that stuff. So what that's going to mean for them economically, I mean, hopefully good things. I mean, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for them, and I'm hoping that this doesn't go horribly bad for them, but that seems to be their plan right now. Um, Over the past week, my husband was up in New York City um, doing some work-related stuff, visiting some people, and he sent me back pictures of New York. Wow. Um, I have never seen New York City that empty before in my life. Like, I, I, I'm kind of nervous for New York City now at this point, because just there's nobody on the streets. The amount of businesses that are boarded up, not because of protesting and rioting stuff, but because they're closed, because they can't afford to be open anymore. Just the amount of stuff that's up for rent, just there's no tourism up there right now, like just none whatsoever, because technically speaking, it's illegal, but you know what? You, It is what it is, you know? But it's just, it was kind of frightening to see. And we always fly Delta because obviously we live in Atlanta and that's just the easiest airline to take. But even with the middle seats blocked out because Delta is one of the only airlines still doing the middle seat blockout. Going up to New York and coming back, the flights were not even remotely fully booked. And these are flights that normally are booked either to capacity or a little overbooked. So the fact that even with the reduced capacity, the amount of people making that flight compared to what is normally the amount of people making that flight, that's a little scary. That's a little nervous because that's like, I, I don't, I don't really know why people are going back and forth between Atlanta and New York City so much, but it's, it's always, I've never been on a flight either to or from that wasn't completely booked. So to know that even with reduced capacity, those flights are not even close to being booked. That's wild. Like that's, that makes me nervous. So I don't know what New York City is going to do in the future, but I mean, they seem to have gotten their COVID situation under control. Their numbers are extremely low, although they're still fucking around with whether they're going to open up school or not. It's just, it's such a mess up there, but it's getting to the point where they're going to have to do something because there's just, I, I don't know how anybody is surviving up there right now. I don't know how any businesses are making money. I don't know how restaurants are doing it. Um, they have decided though that, this new kind of plan that they have where certain streets are shut down for certain portions of the day and or evening and restaurants are allowed to set up tables outside. That is going to be a permanent feature now. It was something that was temporary for COVID, but now they're going to be making that permanent, which I think is kind of cool. I want to go up there. I want to do that. Like I want to go sit on the outside tables and eat and stuff. So Hopefully, maybe that's a little bit of ray of light for them. But yeah, for a city that is as reliant on tourism as New York City is, yikes, that was that was a little frightening to see pictures of a basically empty Times Square. Like, that's not, that is not normal, like, at all. But we shall see what ends up happening with that. Fingers crossed for everybody. And if you are somebody who is now newly unemployed, because we are still having losses in the hospitality sector, in retail, in restaurants, travel, all of that, because people just aren't doing those things anymore. Good luck. My fingers are crossed. I don't know. 
I'm not expecting anything else out of Congress at any point this year. I mean, we'll see what happens after the election. That's really going to hinge on who wins. But I don't know. I don't know what to tell you guys. It's kind of a very up in the air sort of thing right now. But moving on from that to a controversy that I personally don't feel is all that controversial, but a lot of people got all hopped up about it. And that is that during a press conference this week, Trump was asked whether he would accept the results of this upcoming election. And he didn't commit to accepting them, which, first off, when he was asked this question in 2016, whether he would accept a Hillary win, he kind of had that same sort of thing, like, oh, well, we have to wait and see what happens. We have to... The same evasive, stupid non-answer that this man gives every time he doesn't want to actually give an answer. But people took this and he, he kind of went on this little extended riff like he does about the ballots and we have to worry about the ballots. And if we got rid of the ballots, then we, this wouldn't be a problem because there wouldn't even be, we, we, there wouldn't be a transfer of power because we like the same normal nonsense babble that comes out of this man's mouth. And the whole reason I can't really listen to him anymore. But a lot of people took this as him laying the groundwork for not leaving in January if he is indeed voted out of office in November, which it's not up to him. Honestly, it's not up to him. I mean, if he refuses to leave, Secret Service will pick his ass up and haul him out of the White House and dump him on the side of the road. Like, it's not really an option here. But again, it's... I I just, I don't... I, I don't see... It's Trump being the same jackass that he always is and everybody kind of falling for it and taking it and running with it. I mean, if push comes to shove, like, who who do you people think this man is anyway? Like, he's either stupid or smart. Like, y'all need to pick. He's either like an evil genius or a bumbling idiot. He can't really be both. And in order to try to engineer like some Putin-esque way of staying in the White House... I mean, he'd have to be smart. And I don't think this man's very smart. And I don't think anybody's really going to enable him on that. So, I mean, everybody got all twisted about that. And of course, obviously, if Trump was a normal human being, his answer to the question would have been, yes, of course, I'll accept the results of the election and I will peacefully transfer power as we have done throughout our democracy. But this is Donald Trump we're talking about. And he's been laying the groundwork for challenging the results of the election for months now. Like, he's been out here telling people that the ballots, they're all going to be just scams and the, the, the Democrats are going to do a thing and there's mailboxes and it just it's all going to be so, so bad. And it's basically just laying the groundwork that he's going to challenge it. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how exactly he makes this pivot if he does actually win, which at this point polling is starting to matter and polls right now have Biden at about a 10 point lead over Trump. So fairly significant lead, but of course things change rapidly nowadays. Who knows? I don't know. I, all I know is that we are not going to know who won the election on election night. Everybody, please get that idea out of your head. I mean, even from a logistical standpoint, there are states that allow mail-in voting, but do not allow the start of counting those votes until the the polls actually close. 
in that state. So I don't even know logistically how you're going to have a winner on election night. Like, unless there's some massive landslide and I don't see that happening. So everybody just take it down a notch. Like, you're not going to know that night. Just just it, breathe. Just breathe. Trust me, I, I made it through 2000. If we go there, you will make it through 2002. It's it's okay. We're going to be all right. Okay? Everybody just hold on tight. It's a weird situation this year. The amount of mail-in votes are going to be unprecedented. They're going to have to be counted. It's just, it's going to take time. But he's been laying this groundwork for challenging it ever since people started floating the idea of doing mail-in ballots because of COVID. So it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a hot damn mess. And yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> he is a uniquely unhelpful human being when it comes to trying to defuse or de-escalate any sort of situation. And that's how I view this. It's just him being his normal jackass self, escalating a situation just so, uh, for what, I don't know. To own the libs, I guess. I, I don't really know what motivates the GOP or Trump anymore other than just being massive fucking jerks. Anywho, moving on to our new Supreme Court nominee, it is official as of Friday night, Amy Conan Barrett did accept the nomination for the open SCOTUS seat left, obviously, by the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was laid to rest this week. Oh, boy. Um, I'm not looking forward to this. I watched the Kavanaugh hearings. I am not looking forward to this. But speaking of the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, Barrett is not an entirely unknown quantity because she was also on that same shortlist and was passed over for Brett Kavanaugh. So was not a surprise that she was the pick, um, was widely speculated for days ahead of time that she would be it. And so now it is official and the attacks have already started. And some of these, I'm, I'm just like, wow, this is some hypocritical bullshit right here. But let's go ahead and start with her religious affiliation. Um, she is a Catholic and she is apparently part of a group called People of Praise. And a lot of people latched onto this and started this particular narrative related around The Handmaid's Tale, which what did people compare things to before they compared them to like books? Like why, why, why do we have to compare everything to a book? Anywho, within The People of Praise, um, it's, I mean, it's definitely like more traditional, like tradcon sort of things where, you know, technically the men are the, the heads of the household and women aren't allowed to hold positions of power in the, the people of praise hierarchy. Obviously, Barrett is a Seventh Circuit federal judge right now and is nominated for the Supreme Court. So clearly she is allowed to hold positions of power. She's not like chained to the refrigerator and the stove or whatever the hell people think that goes on in these households. Anywho, in People of Praise, before The Handmaid's Tale became like really popular when the, like the Hulu show came out and stuff, they had what they called handmaids. And these handmaids were not like in The Handmaid's Tale. That's not what this was at all. Basically, what these women's functions were within their community were to be along the lines of what you would consider like a church elder or like, like an older person established in your community that you would go to to ask for advice on certain things or just to, to talk or whatever. Like that's, that, that was their role. Not to be 
involved in like weird threesomes based around infertility. <laughs> That's not what was going on. But people latched onto that and tried to make this false equivalency, which even Vox even Vox had to go do a Vox planer about, no, that's not what this was. Just because they used that name does not mean that what they were doing was anything close to what was in Margaret Atwood's book. Please stop it. But people latched onto it because, again, like it's, it's the same thing that people latched onto in the Kavanaugh hearings and the lead up to them is that, oh, it's going to be The Handmaid's Tale and I'm... It's been two years now, and I still haven't got my red robe in the mail, and I don't think I'm going to be getting one anytime in the near future, but that was kind of the first one. And also just the generalized people trying to be like, okay, she's part of some like weird, icky, trad cult thing, which, I mean, there are elements of people of praise that I don't entirely agree with. Obviously, I'm not super like cool with the idea of like the patriarchy in that sense, like not the feminist version of the patriarchy, but in a patriarchal-led community where men are the leaders and women are supposed to be not necessarily subservient to them, but kind of they run the show. And so that I'm not entirely cool with, but the rest of it sounds fairly benign. I mean, they do tithe, which, I mean, Mormons tithe too. There's lots of other Christian denominations that tithe. It's not that big of a deal. But they also seem very community-oriented. It's very expected of you if you are part of the people of praise that you do support the people in your community financially, emotionally. You know, you, you're kind of expected to take care of your own. Um, I mean, you're expected to attend regular services outside of just normal mass. I mean, there's other obligations on that level. I mean, it's it it, it just doesn't strike me as all that bad. But people want to make a big deal out of it because it's weird and whatever. Anyway, it's really not that weird. And people trying to make issue of the fact that she's Catholic. I'm like, okay, being Catholic stopped being like an edgy thing in politics once JFK was elected. Like, where the hell have y'all been? So that was the first one. The second one that's kind of emerged is questions about her children. Now, her and her husband have seven children altogether five bio children, and two adoptees from Haiti. So the first angle that kind of came out was people questioning the Haitian adoptions and kind of trying to insinuate that maybe these weren't entirely on the up and up because there has been a history of Christian missionaries going into Haiti and getting children for adoption that maybe weren't necessarily wanting to be put up for adoption, but basically kind of tiptoeing real close to the whole kind of child trafficker phenomenon that's going on right now and kind of making the the, the, the veiled comparison of, oh, well, these, these other things happened with Christians adopting Haitians. So maybe just asking questions, which like, no, you're not just asking questions. You're insinuating that this woman is a child trafficker. Stop it. Not everybody who adopts a child from a third world country is doing so for nefarious purposes. I mean, obviously she is a devout Catholic and there are people who take the parts of Catholicism, of Christianity, of taking in refugees, poor people, taking in poor children very seriously. 
Like they, they take that part of their faith very seriously. And so this is her way of doing that. Like you adopted these two Haitian children, getting them into America, obviously giving them a better life than what they would have had in Haiti. And people want to like side eye this shit. And I'm like, that's gross. Like, don't, that's just gross. Even, even freaking, even Kendi, which of, of course, of course, because nothing in this world can happen that has anything to do with race without fucking Kendi being involved. All of a sudden, <laughs> and this is another fun thing that's going on. Um, Apparently a part of anti-racism now is de facto segregation. And so basically he makes this tweet insinuating that white people, not calling out Barrett by name, but that white people who adopt children from third world countries are colonizers and that they're doing it because they want to quote unquote prove that they're not racist, but that doesn't mean that they're not racist. You can still be racist and adopt a child from a third world country or adopt a child that's not the same color as you. And it's just like, dude, shut up. Shut up. Go sit down. Why? This man gets paid $20,000 to spout bullshit. How do I get paid this kind of money? I'll do it for five. Like someone give me $5,000. I'll go talk to you about some nonsense. I'll do it at a cut rate, but so that started that whole controversy and conversation. And that's just, that's, like I said, that's just gross. Like, obviously, yes, white people can adopt children from other countries and have them not be white and it not be anything weird. It's just people adopting children because they're kind, good people who want to give a child a better life. Like, really, that's all there is. It doesn't have to be anything deeper. It's not doing it because they're an accessory or because they're trying to assuage their white guilt or they're colonizing or you're trying to, like, turn these Haitian babies into white babies or whatever freaking nonsense. It's stupid. Like, back up. Do not. Do not go down that line of questioning. Related to that line of questioning, though, is the fact that she does have seven kids. And my God, how is this woman going to be a good fit mother to these children while also being a Supreme Court justice? And I'm just sitting here like, wait a minute. Wait a goddamn minute. I was told for the past 60 years by feminists that women can have families and jobs outside of the house. I was told that. I remember distinctly that being a thing. And now all of a sudden you want to make it not a thing? Of course she can. How how is she going to mother her children? I don't know. The same way she's been doing it when she was on the Seventh Circuit or before that when she was a law professor. I'm assuming in the same fashion that she's been a mom this whole time of being a mom, she will continue to be a mom and a Supreme Court justice. Why is this even a question? Seriously? Oh my God, like progressives and trad cons are just like joining up to ask, how is it that women are supposed to have a family and work outside of the house? Like, I, oh my God, y'all are, people are a trip, man. People are a fucking trip sometimes. But yeah, apparently I guess we're just throwing like 60 years of feminism in the trash to try to dunk on Barrett for having a lot of kids and also having a job because apparently you can't do those two things. This is going to be so much not fun. But we did get the 
tentative schedule of how exactly this whole confirmation process is supposed to go down. And if you did not read my Rocket News piece from last week, I touched on the logistics of this and kind of the 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 bad spot this puts Mitch McConnell and Senate GOPers in. So here's here's the schedule as it stands right now per Lindsey Graham. Um, Senate Judiciary Committee is supposed to start the markup process on October 15th, which we are presuming, and again, I think this is a very, very, very optimistic timeline, presuming a vote through the Senate Judiciary Committee on October 22nd, which would be a week after the markup process starts. I think that's a little ambitious. I think that the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee are going to fight this tooth and nail. They will figure out every single way possible to try to drag this out as long as possible. They will call every single freaking witness they can possibly think of under the sun. This is going to be, I, I don't see it happening in a week. I, I just, I don't see how exactly Judiciary Republicans are going to force this through that quickly. We shall see. But but even if that timeline pans out, October 22nd is a Thursday, which if the Judiciary Committee does vote on the 22nd and does vote to approve her for a full vote, that to me, I don't think that vote would happen that next day on that Friday. I think it would carry over into the next week, which the next week is the week before the election. Here's the problem. A, The optics of this suck for the GOP. You're really going to do a Senate confirmation hearing the week before a presidential election. Are you really? The second problem, logistically, is that means that current members of the Senate who are running for re-election are going to have to come off the campaign trail a week before the election to participate in this. If you're Mitch McConnell, your job right now is to protect as many GOP seats in the Senate as humanly possible to to serve as a bulwark against the House being Democratic, which I don't see that changing, and a possible Joe Biden win. You have to keep your majority in the Senate. That is the most important thing. Do you risk pulling vulnerable GOP senators off the campaign trail a week before the election to participate in what is a very controversial vote. Polling right now shows that roughly 50% of of Americans feel that this confirmation hearing should take place after the election, possibly after January, depending on who wins the election. There is definitely a feeling that this should not happen before the election, especially this close to before the election. This is a huge risk that McConnell is going to have to take. And I think there's a lot of calculus kind of going on behind the scenes here. If I was Mitch McConnell, I would be hoping and praying that this does not happen. But on the other side, there is going to be a huge push for this to happen because Donald Trump has sown so much so much just discord and people questioning the validity of this vote that there is going to be a push for there to be nine justices on the Supreme Court bench if this should end up 
in the Supreme Court, because obviously if there's eight justices, you could have a split decision. I do not see that happening in any way, shape or form. I do not just I I do not even see that remotely being a possibility, but it is theoretically possible. So you have this very it's just the timing. The timing is so, so bad for them. Like this is just this is horrible. This is a nightmare scenario for McConnell. So now we got to figure out if this is going to happen before or after the election. Personally, if I were Mitch McConnell, I would try to push this back to after the election and campaign on the idea that, okay, GOPers, okay, Republicans, you have to get out and vote for us. You have to go do this vote because we have to get this seat. I mean, I don't, and and that's a huge risk too. I totally admit that, but I I don't see any good play for them here. Like no matter what, there's going to be consequence. There's going to be fallout. I mean, I don't, oof, this is, like I said, this is just bad. This timing is just horrifying. And even, even if you do support the idea that this is okay, Congress has a job to do. They got to do their job, blah, 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 blah. There's things that you can do, and then there's things that you should do, and you can't deny the optics of doing a Supreme Court confirmation hearing a week before a presidential election are horrible. I mean, there's there's no way around that. It's It's going to look exactly like what it is, which is just raw partisan power pushing through a Supreme Court justice because fuck you, we can. And I don't think that's a very good precedent to set. First of all, I don't think it's fair to bear it. I don't see how in this particular environment, and everybody is basically already at this point, before markup has even begun, everyone is just assuming that this vote is going to go down on partisan lines. I don't think that's very fair to her because I don't think this is going to be a situation where she is going to really get kind of a fair hearing, honestly. I mean, the the results of it are already predetermined, and I, I don't, I don't know. I just, I, I don't like it. I don't like it on that level. Second off, I, I'm not, I'm not in love with this new assumption and would obviously set a new precedent that Supreme Court justices are going to be decided along partisan lines. Because obviously right now you're not going to get a Democrat to vote yes. You're not going to get a Republican to vote no. That's not how this is supposed to work. This is not supposed to be based on who nominated the potential justice. It's supposed to be based on the criteria and the fitness of the person being confirmed for the Supreme Court. This is not, none of this is going to be taken into account. Like, it's just, I, no, this is not okay. I, and, and as far as she is concerned, I mean, she seems fine enough. I'm not in love with her immigration stance. She did vote on the Seventh Circuit to uphold the public charge rule. Not in love with that. Um, She is endorsed by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I don't love her on that level, but she does seem to be really good on 4A issues. She does seem to be really good on 2A issues. She does not seem to support qualified immunity. She does support restoring gun rights to nonviolent felons who have served their time. She is not overly deferential to cops. There's there's a lot of 
good there. But that being said, just because I like this particular candidate does not necessarily mean that I have to like or endorse this process because I can already see how this will happen and how this process will be used to put through a candidate in the future that I do not like. And I will not like this precedent and I will not like Democrats doing what Republicans are doing. And so if you are somebody who does still actually care about such things, if you are somebody who does care about de-escalating hyperpartisanship, somebody has to be the one to put on the brakes. Somebody has to be the one to say, you know what? We're not going to do this. Now would be a good time for Republicans to do that. I have no faith in them to do that. But there's, I mean, that's not to say that you don't hold them accountable for playing a game that if the shoe was on the other foot, they wouldn't like it. And of course, they also have the issue of hypocrisy because of what they did with Merrick Garland back in 2016, basically refusing to hold a confirmation hearing for Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia, who passed away in March of 2016. Obviously, Obama put up Merrick Garland and Mitch McConnell was like, no, we're not even we're not even going to hold a confirmation hearing because it's just so unseemly to have such a thing in the year before an election. Like, it's just that's just so no, that, that should be held over for the next president. And now we're going to have possibly a confirmation vote a week before a presidential election? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no. And you know what? It would almost be better if back in 2016, Senate Republicans and Mitch McConnell would have just been honest back then and said, you know what? We're not doing this because fuck you because we don't want Obama to have another Supreme Court justice, so we're just not going to do this, instead of trying to come up with, like, some convoluted philosophical excuse, because now that convoluted philosophical philosophical excuse is shooting them right in the foot. But of course, nothing matters anymore. Nothing matters. So, I don't know if this confirmation hearing, if the full vote is going to happen before the election or not. Either way, it's just, ooh... This is going to be a disaster. This is going to be so, so ugly. And just judging from the attacks on her already, like nobody on the left is even discussing her judicial stances or her legal stances. It's just, it's wild. I, this is, I mean, at least they can't accuse her of gang rape. I mean, I guess they can accuse her of being a child trafficker, but at least they can't accuse her of gang rape. So there's that. But yeah, this is just going to be... Ooh, no, not looking forward to this, especially not right before a presidential election. No, mm-mm. But this is going to be one hell of a roller coaster. But the last case I want to talk about this week is Breonna Taylor, because we have had news on both the civil front and the criminal front. On the civil front, the city of Louisville did settle its civil suit, their wrongful death lawsuit with Breonna Taylor's family, for $12 million, which of course this $12 million is not coming out of the police union's pension. It's not coming out of any kind of police fund. It's not coming out of any of their pockets. It's coming out of the pockets of the taxpayers of the city of Louisville as these sort of settlements always do, which sucks because obviously 
Louisville residents don't support Breonna Taylor being dead any more so than anybody else does, but now they're going to be the ones on the hook for $12 million. And that sucks. And that's something that should probably get discussed. But of course, that kind of got blown away by the criminal grand jury investigation ending, and they only handed down charges against one of the police officers involved. And these charges are not related to the death of Breonna Taylor herself. There are no charges related to her death. The only police officer that was charged is Detective Brent Haskins, and he was charged on three counts of first-degree wanton endangerment, which is basically because this is, and, and this is a Class D felony. Let me try to explain to you guys the problem here. What Hankinson did, Hankinson, Haskin, anyway, this guy, what he did in order to get charged with anything is he was actually shooting from the outside of Taylor's apartment into her apartment, shooting through a window and a patio door, both of which had curtains on them, and shooting in such a fashion that some of the rounds he shot actually went into her neighbor's house, endangering them. And so now you have wanton endangerment. Not to mention, obviously, you're firing randomly into somebody's house. You don't know who the hell's in there. And so that was the only person charged. Obviously, this led to protests and riots and the shooting of two Louisville police officers in retaliation for this grand jury indictment. Here's the thing. This case sucks horribly. (laughs) There's just, there's nothing good here. There's just the whole thing, front to back, it's just, it's it's fucked up, to be honest. It's completely fucked up. It's not about racism, though. It's about how none of this should have happened. All of this started because these officers were issued a no-knock raid. And yes, it was a no-knock raid. It is right there on the warrant. Whether they announce themselves or not seems to be a topic of very hot debate. We have 12 neighbors who say that they did not hear anybody announce police before starting to ram down this woman's door. The one person who said that he did hear it, um, yeah, his initial story, uh, as reported by Vice News, was that he did not hear them announce police before trying to ram down Breonna Taylor's door, and that that story kind of changed a little bit. So... And that's that this this one person is who Attorney General Cameron hinged his whole defense on that the cops announced before they started to enter into Breonna Taylor's apartment. Even if even if they managed to somehow eke out police before trying to ram down this woman's door. There's a big difference between knocking on someone's door and presenting your badge through the peephole and yelling police while hitting somebody's door with a battering ram. That's not announcing yourself. I'm, I'm sorry, you cannot, you cannot yell police and hit a door with a battering ram at the same time and call that announcing yourself. And there's question to whether they even did that. So, no. No. Second of all, why, why was this a no-knock warrant? In the middle of the freaking night. It's fucking midnight. And you're issuing this no-knock warrant. You're battering a woman's door down with a battering ram. For what exactly? 
I mean, you're looking for evidence of drugs or drug trafficking and the justification that was on the warrant for it being a no-knock is some of like the most kind of coded racist shit I've seen in a long time. It's basically saying like these drug traffickers, calling her a drug trafficker, no evidence of her drug trafficking. These drug traffickers are known for being violent and, and for having cameras surveillance to let them know if the cops are coming ahead of time and for, you know, trying to run away from the cops. And there's no evidence that Brianna Taylor was doing any such thing. Why this couldn't have just been a knock warrant done at, I don't know, five in the afternoon? Certainly seems to be a valid question that one could ask. And of course, when they searched the apartment, there were no drugs. They didn't find anything. So as per usual, like how many times do we have to go through this? How many times do we have to go through this? Anywho, so now you have that. Apparently, whoever was doing the surveillance prior to the police executing the no-knock raid failed to identify the fact that Kenneth Walker was in the apartment with her, which would have certainly been good intel for the police to have that she was not alone, that she was there with a registered gun owner. That probably would have changed how things went down a little bit. And as far as who shot first, okay, here's the thing. Somebody shows up at your door in the middle of the night. You do not hear them announce as police. Nobody else seems to have heard them announce as police. Somebody just starts trying to, like, bang down your door. Yeah, you're probably going to shoot. I mean, I can't be mad at what Walker did because that's, I mean, that's, if that situation was my husband and I, that's what he would have did. He's not going to sit there and wait for you to get inside our apartment to assess the situation. He's going to shoot at you through the door. Because he doesn't want you in our apartment. He's keeping you out of our apartment. So, I mean, I can't, it's just, I I can't fault him for that. What I can fault for is the fact that this, this raid, this no-knock warrant put everybody in an insanely, insanely dangerous situation. And that didn't have to be. There was no reason. There was no, no reason to execute this kind of warrant on Breonna Taylor. There just wasn't. And so now she's dead. <laughs> I mean, there's just there's just so much wrong here. And obviously the larger kind of story of why Brianna Taylor is dead is because of the war on drugs, because this is all over freaking weed. Like honestly? Really? <laughs> at at this point. I I and of course the House was going to vote on descheduling marijuana. And of course, they benched it because they're a bunch of fucking pussies. And, I mean, really, like, really, why? Why is this still so controversial at this point? Like over 50% of Americans are on board with this. Like why? 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 The whole, the whole, this whole case is just one great, big, massive Why? Why did any of this have to happen? None of it had to happen. None of this had to take place. There's no reason why that woman should be dead right now. And I I understand that people want to flatten things out to being racial issues because obviously Breonna Taylor was black. Like, obviously, we all know this. 
But this wouldn't have been any different if she was white. Like, honestly, I don't see how any of this would have gone down any differently if she was my skin color. I, this, it's not, it's not just about racism, but I, I kind of understand why people want to flatten it out that way. Because I think, especially even if you just look at this particular case and you just look at everything that went wrong and how much of it is not due to racism. It's just due to how the criminal justice system works. I think that when you look at it in its entirety, it's so enormous the amount of work that needs to be done that some people kind of shut down and try to to make it be this sort of somewhat easily fixed thing. And kind of as a heads up, um, my first Substack newsletter I'll be sending out here in the next day or two is about what happened in Minneapolis, which if you haven't been keeping up with it, they did. Well, the, the city council passed an initiative to put on the ballot in November the idea of getting rid of the Minneapolis Police Department. The city commissioner's office, it, well, their panel, it's not an office, it's a council, shut down that idea. So as it stands right now, the Minneapolis Police Department is going nowhere. But it has turned into this whole clusterfuck because just nobody bothered to ask anybody anything. People went off half-cocked and it just, it's, it's indicative of this idea that you can just do this one thing and that whoosh, all the problems will be gone. And like, even if you abolish the police in a city, you're not you're not whooshing the problem away. The problem is the whole damn system. And I understand that looking at that and realizing how much has to get fixed is hard. It's like it kind of, it's kind of draining, you know, when you, you sit down and you really sit with it and you look at all the things that have to be changed and everything that's just gone wrong with the criminal justice system and how how long it's going to take to unwind all this. Like, it took us decades to get here. It's not going to be fixed in a month or two. Like, this is going to be decades of work. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be long work. It's going to be draining work. It's going to be incremental work. There's no quick fix here. None. And I understand that that's disheartening to some people, especially when you're angry and you want change now. But there's, but there's just no... No substantive change that can be happened that fast that's going to fix anything. And for to be fair to the city of Louisville, they have banned no-knock rates, which is good. That is process. That's progress. That's the kind of progress we need to see. And even if you don't support the idea of completely doing away with no-knock rates, there needs to be a vastly, vastly, vastly higher standard to get a no-knock raid than what was given in the Breonna Taylor case. Because that was just absurd. There was no reason. And now you have one woman dead, a police officer got shot, we're still trying to figure out exactly whose bullet ended up in that cop's leg. We don't know if it was from Walker's gun or if it was from one of the other cop's guns because everybody was just shooting. Because again, like you're breaking into somebody's house in the middle of the night. Like what is somebody supposed to think? Like, it's just, there's, there's so much to unpack here and it's, and I, I understand 
that people want things to be simple, but things are not simple. Like it's not, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a simple fix. It's going to take a long time to unwind everything that has been wound into the criminal justice system ever since we started the war on drugs. I mean, that's really, that's really where things started to accelerate. That's when you started to see the militarization of cops. You started to see this attitude change from police officers being people who just kind of like help people and, you know, patrol the streets and then do kind of like Andy Griffin kind of stuff to this more warlike mentality where it's us versus them and we're fighting in a war on drugs or a war on whatever, war on gangs, a war on war on anything. It's this whole use of the word war. It, it It's just, it's so insidious and there's so much that's going to have to happen and oh it's going to take a long time but I hope we'll get there one day and I hope that maybe people will refocus on actually getting the work done versus just like going out in the streets and burning things because that's clearly not fixing anything so hopefully maybe people will start focusing again maybe we had a moment We had a brief shining moment after the death of George Floyd where everybody was actually focused on like abolishing qualified immunity and police reform. We had Congress on board and then everything went to shit. (laughs) And I'm still mad about it. I don't think I'm ever going to stop being mad about that. But hopefully things will calm down at some point to where people start actually focusing on the issues again and starting to do this work instead of trying to do these these band-aids these these minor things that are not really going to help anything in the grand scheme of things i can hope maybe one day everybody will get back on board with actually solving problems (sighs) you know i'm an optimist but that pretty much sums up this week and oh my god jesus i just remembered next week we have the first presidential debate (laughs) Oh, because life is just not going to get any better between now and November. So obviously, I will be discussing that next week, plus everything else that I'm sure will happen next week. I am not looking forward to next month, the end of this month. (laughs) Anyway, at this point, I'll go ahead and wrap this up because I I think I've gone on quite long enough. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube. And again, link will be down in the show notes. Please go subscribe to my Substack. Take care and until next time.